Solution-Centered Praying. The very title sounds rather strange. When I was a little boy and through many, many years, all I knew was problem-centered praying. I didn't stop to realize that the Lord has actually commanded us to think positively, to speak positively, and to pray positively. Philippians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 says, Whatsoever things are lovely, think on these things. Whatever things are truthful, think on these things. Whatever things are of good report, think on these things. This is what God commands. But friends, you know, I didn't know anything about that. It never made an impact on my thinking whatsoever. Uh, I never heard anybody preach about it. Uh, to pray a solution-centered prayer? Now, when we obey the Lord's command, and we think positively, and we talk positively, and we pray concerning solutions, instead of problems, except to identify the problem, notice what happens. In Proverbs, the 23rd chapter, in the 7th verse, it says, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So if we think solution-centered thoughts, we become solution-centered. If we think problem-centered thoughts, we're problem-centered. And in 2 Corinthians, the third chapter in the 18th verse, it says, by beholding, we're changed in the same image. So if we become solution-centered, we, our whole lives become positive and beautiful. If we are problem-centered in our thinking and in our speech and in our prayer, our whole lives become problems. Let me give you a few illustrations. When I was a little boy in school, there was a, another boy that stammered. And of course, you know, there's always one bright boy in school, and this bright boy was able to mimic this stammerer. And of course, we boys, we just laughed to see how beautifully he had mimicked the stammerer. Uh, let me interrupt myself to say this, friends. Fathers and mothers, instruct your boys and girls never, never, never to be a party to making fun of some other person who may not be just like us. It might have been ourselves. And so this boy that mimicked the stammerer, I met him a few years later. You know what he was? A confirmed stammerer. By beholding, by talking, by mulling over this thing, he became what he talked about. I heard some time ago of five, I think it was five psychiatrists that did a deep research on suicide. And you know, the report came back that every one of them, except one, you've guessed it, committed suicide. Second Corinthians 3.18 says, we beholding are changed in the same image. What we mull over, what we talk about, even in prayer, we become like, you see. Also, when I was a little boy in school, 
I wanted to learn to ride a bicycle. How many people here in, at this hour have ever learned to ride a bicycle? May I see your hand? Oh, there are a lot of you. Well, that's wonderful. <laughs> but you know, I had a hard time. They had just installed a telephone at our home, and there just beside the road was this telephone pole. And as I got on this bicycle, somehow I became frightened for fear I was going to ride into that telephone pole. I said, I'm afraid I'm going to ride in that telephone pole, and I glued my eyes on the telephone pole, and I became so frigid. You know what happened? You've guessed it. I rode right in the telephone pole. I said, I never want to do that again. So I looked in the opposite direction, and on the other side of the road was a great big maple tree, many times as big as the telephone pole. And I looked at that maple tree, and I thought, if I couldn't avoid the telephone pole, how in this world can I ever in this world avoid the maple tree? It's so big, it's so huge. I'm afraid I'm going to ride into it. And I glued my eyes on it, and I looked at it, and I talked about it, and I thought about it. You know where I went? You've guessed it, right in the maple tree. What we talk about, what we look at, what we meditate upon, what we pray about, we become. Also back home, there was a wonderful, eloquent, most eloquent minister, I think, that my father and mother had ever heard. He was as sincere as he was eloquent, beautifully sincere. With him was a young man whom we would call nowadays an intern. And uh, this older minister was such a beautiful speaker. His whole soul seemed to well up in love for the Christ of Calvary. Oh, my, the young minister just sat there and listened to his, to his older uh, minister preaching. Oh, he thought, I wish I could be like him. The old, older minister, however, had uh, some injury to his hip, and he limped, limped all of his life. The young minister was looking, watching, observing, listening to how the older minister put his words together. And you know, six months later, that young minister was preaching almost like the older one, but something almost humorous took place. The younger minister was also limping, but there was nothing wrong with his hip. By beholding, we're changing the same image. You know why there are so many thousands of people praying and praying and praying, and they never get through to God? There were 15 individuals some time ago that engaged in a special program, an experiment. They believed that if they would pray every day for one or two hours a day, without exception, they could solve any problem. They were part of a larger experiment. There were others who felt that they needed to go to a psychiatrist twice a week or so. There were others who felt there was no way they could solve problems, so they went into a group therapy. But these 15 people said, we believe with all our hearts that prayer is the answer. So they agreed to pray every day from one or two hours. My, isn't that wonderful? At the end of nine months, the end of the experiment, what kind of progress do you suppose those people made? When I was confronted with that question, I said, Probably 90%, maybe 95%. You know how, what progress they made? Zero. You know why they made zero progress? Because they prayed about their problems instead of praying about solutions that God has promised. You see, the Bible gives us 3,573 promises or clusters of promises. It can go into many more thousands. 
And each of these promises, when we claim that promise, we have the right to focus our attention on the solution that's promised. But they didn't do it. One of those men would be praying something like this, a man who got nowhere with his prayer. He'd say, Dear Lord, I have a temper. I have a terrible temper. But Lord, my dad had a temper too. And my grandfather, he was awful. And even on my mother's side, my, my mother can cackle like a hen, a setting hen. But she got, it, she, she got it from her mother and her grandmother. But Lord, I wish I didn't have this temper. Lord, this temper is terrible. Oh, please deliver me from this temper. And you know what happens the next day? The next day, in, in addition to having scolded his wife the first day, he kicks the cat the second day. He said, Lord, it's getting worse. This temper is terrible, Lord. It's getting me down. I don't know how I'm ever going to be ready to meet the Lord. And the next day, he hits the dog and kicks the cat and scolds his wife. By beholding, even in prayer, by discussing, by fixing our attention, by talking and talking and talking and mulling over problems, we become part of the problem. I've wondered for many years why it is that so many people talk about the seven last plagues. Now, the, it's a Bible doctrine. It's all right to study it, but why should people keep talking and talking and talking about seven last plagues until they become a plague? You don't like to be around them. They talk about pestilence till they become a church pest. They talk about a time of trouble till they become troublemakers. Why? By beholding, we're changed the same image. God has a better way. The Bible presents solution-centered praying. Here's one ex example. In the book of Genesis, chapter 32, we have the story of Jacob and his night of wrestling. And as Jacob was wrestling, he claimed two specific promises of the Lord, solution-centered promises. And not merely did he claim a solution, but when he was through praying, he acted out the solution. You'll find there in the 31st chapter how he actually believed that the Lord was hearing him to such an extent that all of his actions conformed to the solution-centered prayer. In Second Chronicles, the 20th chapter, King Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, was confronted by many nations. The armies were coming against him. He knelt down in sackcloth and ashes, and he claimed a promise that God had made, a solution-centered promise. He asked God to do what he'd promised. That's the A of prayer. He told God that he believed God would do it. That's the B of prayer. And then he had his whole choir, his army choir, sing a song of thanksgiving that God had given them the solution. They went out against the enemy. You know the result. Tremendous deliverance. In the New Testament, the same is true. There was the woman with the issue of blood found in, it's recorded in Mark, the fifth chapter. Notice how she prayed. She said, if I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. She talked about the solution. She thought about the solution. She pictured, pictured herself being healed. 
If I may but touch his clothes, I shall be healed. My friends, that's the way the Lord wants us to pray. He wants us to claim any one of his, of his thousands of promises and by his grace conform to the conditions. And then reach right up and say, Lord, you asked, you've told me to ask, Matthew 7, 7. You've told me to believe, Mark eleven twenty four. And then Jesus himself set the example. In John eleven forty one. Jesus standing there at the grave of Lazarus, he knew that over there in Isaiah, God had promised that he could, he could deliver the prisoner. And so he reached up and looked up toward heaven. And he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. How about that? How about that for a prayer? Thank you, Father, you have heard me. And you always hear me. Lazarus, come forth. That is solution-centered praying. This is what God wants us to do. We've been presenting this across our, our, across our land for a number of years. I remember we were holding a series of meetings in, in the middle of the state of Tennessee. And one night I said to the people, as, I said, as we sing our song tonight, you may be free to leave as we sing the song. It's going to be a little different type of conclusion. But I said, as you're leaving, as you sing and go out, any of you that has a special problem, would you just come up here to the front? And we will we'll just claim a specific Bible promise. For the Bible promises are seed, Jesus said in Luke 11, 8, 11. The seed is the word of God. Every seed contains what it names. An apple seed contains an apple tree, trunk, two leaves and roots. An acorn contain, contains an oak tree, Three departments, trunk, two leaves, and roots. So every promise of God contains a solution. So I said, be free to come. Not a soul came except one little boy. Maybe he was 10 years old, a little tyke. And as he came up front, he didn't even look at me. He looked down at the floor. He was so bashful. You know, it's wonderful to see boys that are bashful these days, isn't it? And I said, son, did, did you come to see me? Now, I'll never forget how he enunciated, how he articulated. He said, yes. I said, sit down. What is your problem? He said, temper. Well, I said, I have a promise for you right from the Bible. Isaiah 26, 3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. I said, there's a promise of peace. Now, I said, you know about the ABCs. A is what? He said, ask. B is what? Believe. C is what? Claim it by saying, thank you, Lord, I have received, because the gift is in the promise. And I wrote out the text. I said, now put it in your pocket. When you get home, at the very first sign of losing your temper, pull that slip of paper out of your pocket quickly and read it. I said, but first, you, of course, will, as you go home, you'll write the full text out, put it in your pocket. Then you'll take it out of your pocket and read it at the first sign of temper. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace. That's what you want. Instead of a temper, you want peace. And you say, Lord, I ask you to give me perfect peace. Lord, I believe you're giving me perfect peace. What's he talking about? Peace. What's the mind dwelling on? Peace. 
What is the heart meditating? Peace. Then say, Lord, thank you. You are giving me peace. Will you do it, son? He said, yes. And I prayed with him, and he went on his way. About two or three nights later, of all things, the little boy was back again. I hadn't taken a good look at his face, and I wasn't sure he's the same boy. I said, son, did you come to see me? He said, yes. Are you the same boy that was here the other night? Yes. I said, sit down. So he sat right down the corner, just like this lad is. And I thought, I'll corner him, because I'm pretty sure what he's coming to talk to me about. He's going to say, probably, Pastor, it just doesn't work. But I'm going to beat him to the draw, and I'm going to, I'm going to let him know the reason it didn't work before he even mentions it is that he didn't work it. Of course he didn't write it out. Of course he didn't ask. Of course he didn't believe. Of course he didn't say, thank you, Lord. So I said, I'll, I'll put him on the spot. I said, son, when you went home, did you write that text out in full? He said, yes. You did? Yes. Did you put it back in your pocket? And at the first sign of losing your temper, did you pull that out of your pocket and say, Lord, I ask you to give me peace? Yes. You did? I couldn't believe it. Yes. Did you say, Lord, I believe you're giving me peace? Yes. Really? Yes. Did you say, Lord, I thank you, I am now receiving peace? Yes. What happened, son? He said, I haven't lost my temper since. Praise the Lord. What do you say? This is solution-centered praying. Every promise in God's immutable, eternal, impeccable, never-failing word, every promise contains a solution. What is the solution? Jesus Christ. He said, the words that I speak unto you, their spirit and their life. When we claim a promise for wisdom, James 1.5, you know what we're claiming? We're claiming the life of Christ in the form of wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ is made unto us wisdom. The promises of God are the life of Jesus. He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. The words that I speak unto you, their spirit and their life. <clears throat> A 73-year-old lady came to see us at the close of one of our meetings. I want to tell you that lady's heart was just plowed up with worry. It was stamped all over her countenance. She said, Pastor, my daughter is so mean to me. She said, she cuts me all up. She's so sarcastic. It seems I'm just going to perish. There's nothing for which to live anymore. Pastor, what shall I do? I said, here's a promise. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. I said, you see, as you claim this promise, you're not merely to ask and to believe and thank God you've received, but you're to focus your attention on Jesus Christ. The promises are the life of Christ. He is the Word of God made flesh. The promises are the Word of God in written form. I said, now you can go back home and you can claim that promise. But as you do it, Fix your attention on some miracle of Christ. Reconstruct a miracle like the healing of the leper. You see there the great crowd surrounding Jesus? 
The leper was ostracized from society. He couldn't come anywhere near the habitations of man without crying out, unclean, unclean. But he'd heard of Jesus. He'd heard of his wonderful works. He decided that he would, he would attempt somehow to get through to Jesus. But the crowds were all about Jesus. Finally, overcome with the obsession of cleansing, he forgot the restrictions of society. And I said, you'll be following all of this when your daughter is so sarcastic. And you'll see the leper now starting straight for Jesus. The crowds fall back on both sides. They leave a path right to Jesus. He rushes up to Jesus. He falls on his, on his knees before Jesus. And he said, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus touches him. And he said, I will be you clean. And I said, as you fix your gaze on Jesus, no matter what anybody says, he said, I'll give you perfect peace. Would you like to do it? She said, yes. I knelt with her and prayed. I asked God to give her peace as she claimed the solutions of his word. I told God I believed he was doing it as she claimed Jesus Christ in his life in his word. I said, thank you, Lord. She is receiving as she fulfills the simple conditions. She went on her way. About two or three nights later, she was back. And really, I knew that no 73-year-old person is going to do anything you tell them to do, you know. <laughs> but I was in for the biggest surprise, one of the biggest surprises of my life. Her face was beaming. She said, Pastor, there's not a word, there's not a thing that my daughter can say to me that bothers me in any way. Not a thing bothers me anymore. Friends, this is solution-centered praying. This is prayer. This is communing with God, not on the problem level, but on the solution level. I remember I was mentioning this in one of our services some time ago. And I said, now I used to let people come to me for counsel. And they'd take an hour mulling over the problem of darkness. And by the time they got through the hour, I was so exhausted I could emit very little light. I said, now I let them only present their problem in three minutes. Then I take 12 minutes on the solution, four times as long looking at the problem, at the solution as at the problem. And I thought, well, that'll save me having to talk to about uh, three or four neurotics, you know, that like to take about three hours of everybody's time. I felt very happy as I pronounced the benediction. I walked down the aisle, way back in the church on my right, there was a lady. She said, Pastor, I must see you for two hours. I thought she was kidding. I looked at her. She said, I mean it. I must see you for two hours. I said, 15 minutes. She said, I said, two hours. I said, if you can identify it in, a, in three minutes, by God's grace, I can give you a solution in 12. She said, I already know what my problem is. I said, that leaves us 14 minutes for the solution. In 14 minutes, God gave me from God's immutable eternal word the solution. The next night, the lady said, it's perfect. Peace has come. He promises us. Perfect peace, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Isaiah 26, 3. Friends, may the Lord's Holy Spirit help you and me to focus our thinking, our prayers, our conversation on the positives found in Jesus Christ. May men and women coming in contact with you and me not hear us dwelling on things gone by, on the negatives 
but may they, they see us pointing them in conversation, in prayer, in song, in our daily activities to him who is altogether lovely, for by beholding him we're changed in the very same image. Shall we pray? Dear Father in heaven, and friends, as we pray, are there those here in this audience and the viewing audience who would like to ask the Lord to help us to completely change our vision from self and pitying self and the negatives of life to the beauties in Jesus? Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. We're asking. We are believing. We're claiming your promise of changed attitudes, characters, habits of life, and a new destiny by beholding the beauties of our Lord, by conversing on his glorious condescension, his love, and our eternal home. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.